listening to the Bible 126 show. Oh, Father, we just praise you for who you are. We thank you once again for the privilege, the joy, the majesty of just spending time with you. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your Holy Spirit to illumine that word to us. We would just ask you, Father, to attend to us this evening and just open our hearts and minds that we might behold Jesus Christ, that we might better understand that which you have put here for us and for our learning, that we might grow in grace in the knowledge of him. In whose name we pray. Amen. Uh, as you know, a, a couple of my ambitions have been, of course, to get through the uh, prophets. We've done most of those. There's still a few small books that we haven't done. I've also, we've also gone through the Torah, all but Leviticus. We touched Leviticus slightly incident to the Hebrew study. But the one thing we've never tackled was the historical books. And so uh, I thought what we'd do tonight is begin a survey, starting with 1 Samuel. And, uh, gee, uh, well, there goes, the, there goes the tape, right. Yeah. <laughs> that uh, I, I expected applause. I didn't expect a harmonic motion. Um, no, we, we will uh, we will uh, uh, roll with the uh, uh, historical books, um, and I, I uh, we we finished Joshua some time ago. We could the logical thing would be to take Judges, but frankly, uh, uh, I thought it'd be more fun just to frankly jump right into Samuel. We'll take Judges some time when your cable uh, subscription is expired and you're tired of looking at the R and X movies. We'll move into the Book of Judges, but uh, but the uh, I think that. Uh, we uh, we need to talk. Uh, we need to set the stage a little bit for Samuel. Um, Samuel is an interesting book because it really lays the foundation for a lot of things. Uh, we're going to enjoy, I think, the uh, the um, excursion. Um, all of us need to understand better the monarchy and Israel and the foundations, and uh, it'll give us a better p- picture of the Bible in general. But also, we're going to encounter some very exciting uh, dimensions to it because, first of all, we will, of course, get into the the whole business of David, just who he was, and, and uh, that's, that in itself is very exciting. But we will also, it will, you'll get a surprising number of very uh, uh, vivid spiritual lessons as we go, because it's, uh, the, it's clearly that was the, the coloration of the history that we're reading. It's not just simple history. It's a, there's very specific things put in antithesis of each other. And so we'll uh, be sensitive to that as we go. But we'll also have the opportunity to get into the temple and one of the things uh, uh, my wife and I talk a lot about, she's done 10 years of research in the temple, we always think of the temple as the tabernacle built into a building. It turns out to be quite a bit more than that. It's also interesting that in the Bible, seven times throughout the scripture, it says that you are the temple of God. What does that mean? Well, you can't answer that until you really understand what the temple is all about. So we'll be getting, obviously, into uh, Samuel, Saul, David, and... Uh, the temple, of course. So uh, we might use a sort of an introduction, introductory uh, uh, dimension here. Turn to the Book of Ezra. Book of Ezra, and I'm interested in verse ten, chapter seven, verse ten. Chapter 7, verse 10, For Ezra had prepared his heart to seek the law of the Lord, to do it, 
and to teach in Israel statutes and ordinances. Interesting capsule, interesting objective that Ezra had. Prepared his heart to seek the law of the Lord, to do it, and to teach in Israel statutes and ordinances. Now, I suppose when you're talking about Chuck Mistler, you have to say two out of three ain't bad. You study and teach, that's the easy part. There's a, the, 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 the tough one in here, right in the middle, they've sandwiches to do it. That's a little tougher. But that's going to be our goal as we go through the uh, historical books, would be to um, seek the law of the Lord. And by the law, I don't mean the Ten Commandments. I don't mean Exodus 20. I don't mean even just the Torah. I mean the law of the Lord in a broader sense. To do it and to teach it. And that's something else you all might pray about. It's interesting how all across the country there are people that are undertaking leading Bible studies. Some of you wonder, gee, why do I come here for the last almost, well, 20 years teaching? Because that's the best way to learn. See, I love to take a book that I don't know anything about and just stay about a chapter ahead of you. Running to the libraries, to the bookstores, whatever, and sucking up what little tidbits I can get because that's the that's really the, all it boils down to. Many, many people will get tapes, either mine or Hal Lindsey's or Chuck Smith's or whoever you respond to, and let the tapes keep you ahead of a group. But get a group in your home. I think if you would canvas people that are spiritually growing, I wouldn't be a bit surprised if nine out of ten of them, first of all, are active in a home Bible study, and secondly, uh, would ascribe most of what they know in the relationship with the Lord through these small groups and in intensive studies. So let me encourage you to think in those terms, either in participating in small groups or, and or taking one on to lead them. Because first of all, uh, you'd be just amazed how the Lord would bless that. But in any case, let's um, talk a little about Samuel. Uh, the, in the Masoretic text, the uh, original Hebrew text, the uh, book of Samuel was one book. When the Greek, uh, in, Alexandria, uh, in Alexandria, when they did the uh, Greek translation of the Old Testament, what we know as the Septuagint version, they took First and Second Samuel and First and Second Kings and made four books out of them, First, Second, Third, and Fourth Kings, or Kingdoms, actually. In the Latin Vulgate, when they translated it into Latin, they put First and Second Samuel, they broke it again back to the book of Samuel broken in two, and the book of Kings broken in two to give, have it as we know it. Our English Bible, from that point of view at least, is organized after the Latin Vulgate. But don't be surprised because to, to a Jewish person, it's the book of Samuel, first, what we call first and second. And yet to uh, many, uh, in many translations that lean more heavily on the Septuagint, you'll find first, second, third, and fourth Kings. So don't be surprised about that. We know it as first and second Samuel, first and second Kings. Those four books, though, forming... A very, you know, a very contiguous uh, 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 chronology. The author of the book is, uh, I think this is one place where we can lean heavily on the Talmud. The Talmud describes the first 24 chapters of Samuel 1 to Samuel. Chapters after that are a little bit hard to attribute to Samuel because he dies there. But, um, <laughs> but then again, where's your faith, right? No. No. Uh, <laughs> But the, the Talmud also uh, uh, indicates that the subsequent portions were written by Nathan and Gad together, and it's also suggested in First Chronicles 29:29. No big controversy about that. I'll just uh, keep moving. The date of the book, it's amazing how people having to do master's theses in seminaries like to tackle dates for some reason. But candidly, there really is little debate that this was 
pulled together in David's time. And we know it was prior to the fall of Samaria, which is 722 B.C., and David was roughly 1,000 B.C., so we're quibbling maybe 100, 200 years of ambiguity. But most scholars, including the Talmud, would ascribe it to David's period. Another perspective as we talk about dates, to give you an overall perspective, Saul, David, and Solomon each reigned for about 40 years. Saul, 40 years, and of course, Acts 13, 21, he reigned for about 40 years. That's roughly 1050 B.C. to 1010 B.C. David reigned for 40 years, according to 2 Samuel 5, verse 4, from 1010 to about 970. And there's arguments about the dates, but just to give you a rough perspective. So when you think of David, you think about roughly 1000 B.C. And then Solomon reigned for 40 years, according to 1 Kings eleven forty two, from 970 to about 931. So that's uh, Solomon's reign is about 200 years before the fall of Samaria or when the uh, northern kingdom goes into captivity under the Assyrians. And then it's another uh, little over 100 years before the Babylonian captivity uh, is opposed on the southern kingdom, just to give you a, a broad feeling of timing. Um, now, the time of Samuel and on obviously follows the period of the judges and uh, to get a real context here, you should obviously read the book of Judges, but the main theme that comes through, even though it does have its high spots, uh, the main theme of the book of Judges is everyone did what they thought was right in their own eyes. And that phrase occurs again and again throughout the book, and it's the theme of the book, implying a spiritual low point. Whenever people are uh, uh, do what they think is right, that's considered, that's bad news. You want an example of that? Look around at our society, right? Secular humanism is a failure. Uh, relativism uh, is bankrupt. Alan Bloom's book, *The Closing of the American Mind*, is a fabulous treatise on that from a strictly secular point of view. It's very perceptive. But in any case, uh, in the book of the, uh, the Judges, we have a time when, although there were judges raised to lead the people under Deborah and. Samson, in his way, uh, there were there were points of of, uh, uh, of uplift in a sense. Um, at the same time, the backdrop is one of pretty grim self determination, and so in that sense, Samuel is said to be the last of the judges. The last of the judges. In another sense, he's the first of the prophets, not in the sense that he's the first prophet, because both Abram and Moses are described as prophets. Uh, Abram was the first prophet, according to Genesis 20, verse 7. But And Moses is perhaps the greatest of the prophets, according to Deuteronomy 18 and, and elsewhere. But in the sense of a series of prophets of the period we're talking about, Samuel, in the sense, was the last of the judges and the first of the, of the prophets that were called directly to speak to Israel. And uh, so uh, that's, that's uh, a perspective. Samuel is of a Levitical descent. We'll learn in the 10th chapter. We also learn that Samuel and his mother were very given to prayer. It seems to be one of the secrets in their life. You'll be sensitive as we go through Samuel that he is a prayer warrior. Okay. Um, the spiritual condition is at a low point. Even the priesthood is corrupt. There are times in the past where the people wouldn't listen, but the priesthood itself was maybe just ineffectual. Here we'll discover in several ways the priesthood is really corrupt, and that really 
uh, creates a tough spiritual environment. Um, the Ark of the Covenant is at this moment uh, at a place called Shiloh, about 20 miles north of Jerusalem. And we're going to discover they make a lot of mistakes. They take it to war. They're not supposed to do that. And uh, interesting things happen as a result. Um, we'll uh, see the, the, the power shift from Shiloh to Gibeah. That's where Saul sets up his reign. And then David reigns for seven and a half years at Hebron before going to uh, Jerusalem. So there'll be, a, there'll be a migration there of centroids that we'll, we'll watch as we go. Politically, the world is kind of a, it's kind of a static time. The Hittites are now in, in significance. Egypt, which is normally a major power, is weak at this time and having all kinds of internal conflicts. So they're not a real factor here. The main adversaries of Israel turn out to be the Philistines. They're uh, uh, referred to by the ancients as the Sea People. They came from the Aegean Islands and they settled along the coast. And uh, we're going to see them be the main threat. The Philistines had a technological advantage. They had at the time a monopoly on iron. And in military terms in that period, that was a decisive advantage. So the Philistines are extremely powerful. And uh, the main adversaries that surface, of course, in the judges, in fact, even Abraham encounters them, but they're a significant factor during that period of the judges. And uh, clearly, uh, you'll see they become uh, the major antagonist in uh, uh, this period of Israel's history. A um, couple of things that I'd like to put down right away. We're going to sit, well, we'll, 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 when we get to the appointment of Saul, we'll talk about kings. Uh, we'll get, you clearly get the impression, if you don't read carefully, that the, the appointment of a king over Israel was an afterthought, that it was sort of God giving in to the request of the people. That's misleading because the idea of kings over Israel are anticipated throughout the scripture. They're, uh, they're anticipated in Genesis 17, 35, 49, Numbers 24, Deuteronomy 17, and in the book of Ruth. book of Ruth, curse time of the judges. And the prediction of David being king is in the prophecies. So it wasn't that uh, God reluctantly gives them a king by letting him have Saul. They just wanted one too soon. David wasn't ready. So uh, we'll get a little different perspective on that. Another issue that will come up in the book will be some interesting insights into the Holy Spirit. We're going to discover that the Holy Spirit is selective and temporary because we find Saul, Spirit, Holy Spirit's on Saul to do certain God-appointed tasks. We'll find that in, in chapter 10 and 11. We also find David uh, 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 receiving the Spirit in chapter 16. But we also discover that the Holy Spirit's taken away, taken away from Saul, and um, uh, in the chapter, well, several places, but uh, uh, we also will discover that David himself, when he has a sin with Bathsheba, will pray, take not thy Holy Spirit from me. So you and I may sing that song or pray that psalm, but we can't redo really that, because if you have the Holy Spirit, he's without repentance. That's very unique to us, and Paul in his epistles is, blows his mind. So, because he, he understood the Holy Spirit from the Old Testament, uh, in the New Testament era that we're, we live in, it's a different ball game where he's permanent and universal. And uh, first we'll go into 1 Corinthians 12 and Romans 8 when we get to that stuff. Okay, that's sort of a quick sort of overview of what we're getting into. 1 Samuel, chapter 1. Now there was a certain man of Ramathiam Zophim, 
or something like that. And that's also said Rama is the short title. Thank goodness. Um, I think when we get to verse 19, it uh, speaks of Rama in short form. So I won't have to try to pronounce verse 1 twice. Okay. Uh, Mount Ephraim. Now, by the way, uh, we will speak of Ephraimites, but the, it's used geographically, not tribally. We're talking here of Levit- Levites, priests, as we go. But in any case, Mount Ephraim. And his name was uh, Elkanah, the son of Jeroam, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zuth, and Ephraim, uh, Ephraimite. Now, here, the son of an Ephraimite. See, there it can be misleading. Don't think of that as the tribe of Ephraim, but rather it's a, it's a, a geographic description. Now, he had two wives. That's known as double trouble. <laughs> and I'm not being flippant. I guess I am. But the, the thing is, it's interesting. <laughs> it's, it's interesting that the Scripture clearly teaches, while polygamy was allowed in their culture, the Bible clearly always paints a rather dismal picture of it. If you do a little study of polygamy, and there's many places where guys have more than one wife, but you won't find peace in the house. So, uh, uh, and I'm, I'm, you know, it's, it's tempting to make cute little quips and stuff. The truth of the matter is, is that God's plan for man to be happiest is to pick the right one and have one, right? And uh, so, uh, anyway, uh, this one had two wives. The name of the one was Hannah. And the name of the other, Penina, which I believe means pearl, which puzzles me because pearls were not kosher. So I don't quite know how to put that all together. But in any case, um, and Penina had children, but Hannah had no children, period. Carriage return, new paragraph. You can fill in the blanks, can't you? Can you imagine that household? Can you imagine the smugness, the arrogance of the one that had offspring? And can you imagine the agony, the depression, of the one that didn't. How often this occurs in the scripture, and uh, it's, uh, 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 of course, the root of the tale as we go here. And this man went up out of his city yearly to worship and to sacrifice unto the Lord of hosts in Shiloh. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, the priests of the Lord, were there. These two guys are bad apples. We're going to find out that these two guys, the sons uh, of, of uh, are, are just uh, of Eli, are bad news. When the time was that Elkanah offered, he came to Penina, his wife, and to all her sons and her daughters, portions. But unto Hannah he gave a, it says worthy portion. The, the, the text implies a double portion. For he loved Hannah. But the Lord had shut up her womb. We, we don't know how many children he had. He had at least four. Because he had she had sons and daughters. So it implies at least two of each, maybe more. And uh, so he, did, he gives out the portions. But to Hannah, he gives extra. Because he loves Hannah, now I'm sure he's not insensitive to the fact that she's getting the brunt of all the jibes and snide remarks and what have you. Uh, and you, know, you girls know what I'm talking about. You know, you know, you know how to do it when you want to, don't you? Okay. Um, but the Lord shut up her womb. The question you're going to ask you is now. It's interesting. You know, a lot, many people are anguished about having children, not having children. The one thing you can talk about all the biology alike. It's God that opens the womb, and it's God that brings the children. And that's scriptural. You can. He opens the womb from Genesis 30, 
verse 2 and verse 22, but you'll find that reference. And also, he provides the children according to Genesis 33, 5 and Psalm 127, 3. I don't think references for that. It's pretty obvious, isn't it? Okay. But we often lose sight of that as we have the anxiety of offspring and such. And God can close the womb for lots of reasons. One is the timing may not be right. We'll see in Hannah's case that uh, God had it all had uh, had it all in view, and it's going to be an interesting story. But also in our in our own lives, uh, those kinds of issues are very very vital to the people involved. And let's not lose sight of the fact that God is in control, and He has His purposes. Some of His purposes may be timing. Some of His purposes may be a lot of other circumstantial issues that need to be dealt with. In any case, the Lord had shut up Hannah's womb. Verse 6, and her adversary, who could that be, also provoked her relentlessly to make her fret because the Lord had shut up her womb. And as he did so year by year, when she went up to the house of the Lord, so she provoked her. Therefore she wept and did not eat. Then said Elkanah, her husband, to her, Hannah, why weepest thou? You notice, girls, the guys never get the picture, do they? <laughs> why weepest thou? And why eatest thou not? And why is thy heart grieved? Am I not better to thee than ten sons? What are you going to say to that one, huh? Um, you know, this is an event, this is an issue in our society, but in that society it was even a bigger deal. Because that was, you know, the self-image, the same, the, the, a very primary part of life was to bear children to the uh, to the uh, uh, to the family, and uh, so this was a this is a, a, a trip that's heavier on her than probably most of us have the capacity to fully appreciate. But am I not better to thee than ten sons? Uh, her response is not recorded. <laughs> Verse nine. So Hannah rose up after they had eaten in Shiloh. And after they had drunk, now Eli the priest sat up on a seat by a post of the temple of the Lord. Now this is a, a, a piece of research I haven't finished yet. I'm a little puzzled by the term temple, except it's important for us to know that the tabernacle is referred to as the temple, because what's here is probably the tabernacle, and this is referring to the tabernacle as a temple. The temple hasn't been built. The temple is Solomon's temple. It's yet future. Some scholars have suggested in their comments, but I haven't checked it yet because I don't quite buy it, that they may have converted you know, the, the tabernacle that was built by Moses that went through the 40 years in the wilderness may have been worn out by now because it was a canvas, cloth, rigged kind of thing. And they speculate that it had been, you know, a more physical structure had been replaced. I can, I don't find any evidence of that, so I don't buy that. So I believe it's still a tabernacle. It's just referred to as a temple. In fact, there are seven temples. We'll do a study when we get to the temple. We'll take, do a study of that. And the first temple, you know, we speak of Solomon's temple being the first temple, Herod's temple being the second, and so forth. That's a little misleading, because that's not the way God enumerates them. There are seven t temples versus the tabernacle. It's mentioned as a temple, and this is probably one of the places. And we'll do a little study of that when we get to it. I won't derail us now. I'll just alert you to that. But we'll want to focus on that very carefully because of the seven times in the Scripture we are described as the temple of God. We need to understand what the temple is really all about. We learn all our architecture of, our, of the 
immaterial part of us from a schizophrenic uh, experimenter by the name of Freud, who probably meant well, but he had his problems too. And it's amazing how much of our psychology uh, insights are built upon that kind of a foundation, when in contrast to that, there is a great deal of insight into what our real architecture is in the scripture. And we'll get into that a little bit when we get uh, to the temple, get some surprises there. But in any case, uh, here is uh, Eli, the priest, sat upon a seat by the post of the temple of the Lord, and she was in bitterness of soul, as Hannah, she was in bitterness of soul and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. Now, we get the impression here she is praying to the Lord, but she's sort of moving her lips by herself. Eli later will we'll, we'll find out that he thought she was drunk because she saw her sort of muttering. He saw her sort of muttering. It gives you an insight into the culture at the time. People would show up at the temple drunk. But in any case, she's not. She's praying. Bitterness of soul, prayed to the Lord, and wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow. Now, whenever you see a vow, you can do a study of vows sometime, but I think you'll find in general they're not recommended. If you are going to do a vow, make sure you keep it. She makes one and does. So this is one of the better examples. But in general, you'll find vows are usually a pitfall that you set for yourself. Boy, there's plenty of pitfalls around. You don't have to make new ones. You know, vows usually are. Anyway, she vowed a vow. I, incidentally, I know of no place. But I, uh, whenever I make a statement like this, I get 17 people over the next few weeks that correct me. But I personally know of no place where a vow is re required or requested. I think they're always voluntary. There's the Nazarite vow, and that's perhaps one of the exceptions. But there again, it's voluntary. Anyway, she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if thou wilt... Indeed, look upon the affliction of thy handmaid, and remember me, and forget not thy handmaid, but will give unto thine handmaid a male child. Then I will give him unto the Lord all the days of his life, and there shall no razor come upon his head. Now, this is similar to, but not exactly, the Nazarite vow. The true Nazarite vow was for a duration of time, and there's a whole procedure surrounding it. There are um, three people in the Bible that are lifetime Nazarites. Okay? Samson was one. Now, he wasn't exactly, but he was supposed to have been, you see. The significance of the haircut, the famous Delilah trim, was one of, or whatever, uh, was was. Not that there was anything magic about his hair. It was just a testimony of his commitment to the Lord. And so uh, uh, to understand the story of Samson, you need to understand what the Nazarite, you know, he was, he, he was committed to be a Nazarite for his life. The second one is, will be Samuel, the child that she will bear. And the third one, of course, is John the Baptist. They are lifetime Nazarites. That can be a little misleading because we learn about Nazarites from those three people, but the true, the normal Nazarite is a, I think it's a 30-day kind of, Commitment. It's, I mean, it's not a lot. You know, there's a. I'm not sure it's 30 days. The point is, there's a specific procedure, and there's a way to get in and get out of it. If you recall, Paul, in the Book of Acts, sponsored a couple of guys uh, that were getting off their Nazarite vows. We get into that there a little bit. But in any case, Hannah is doing something a little differently here. She's saying, "Lord, if you give me a son, I will give him to you all the days of his life. She'll give him right back." That's quite a commitment. That's quite a commitment. Not only on her part, but on the part of her husband. 
because uh, we'll learn from Numbers 30 that if she makes a vow, the husband has to ratify it. He has the opportunity to undo it. And Elkanah does not do that. He, he endorses it. Quite a commitment. And it's one thing to promise it when you need it, right? She makes it good. She makes it good. And also that no razor shall come up at his head as a symbol of this commitment. This, uh, uh, well, verse 12. And it came to pass as she continued praying before the Lord that Eli observed her mouth. Now, was he sitting there watching this gal, I assume, muttering? You know? He couldn't hear what she was saying. Verse 13, Now Hannah, she spoke in her heart, only her lips moved, but her voice was not heard. Therefore Eli thought she was drunk. And Eli said unto her, How long wilt thou be intoxicated? Put away thy wine from thee. And Hannah answered and said, No, my lord, I am a woman of sorrowful spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but have poured out my soul before the Lord. Count not thine handmaid as a wicked woman, for out of the abundance of my complaint and grief have I been speaking. Then Eli answered and said, Go in peace, and the God of Israel grant thee thy petition that thou hast asked of him. Now, Eli's a priest. This isn't just sort of a well-meaning, you know, kind of pat on the back. This is, a, this is a stronger kind of declaration. It comes from the priest. And it turns out to be a, not just a benediction, but in effect a prophecy, because indeed the Lord does grant her her petition. Verse 18, And she said, Let thine handmaid find grace in thy sight. So the woman went her way and did eat, and her countenance was no more sad. From that I infer she accepted on faith the Lord was going to answer her prayer. I don't know how many of us ever pause to thank the Lord for the prayers that we've given him that he doesn't answer. You know, I can imagine a number of mine that I'm glad he, in his grace, in his insight, chose to pass. But in this case, she obviously is no more sad because she is confident the Lord's going to grant her her Request, and he does. Verse 19, they rose up in the morning early and worshipped before the Lord and returned and came to their house at Ramah. And Alkanah knew Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. And I think all of you are familiar with the King James euphemism about knowing. <laughs> you know what I mean, right? <laughs> Oh, I'm getting deeper in trouble. Right, okay. <laughs> Moving right along. Wherefore it came to pass, verse 20, when the time was come about after Hannah had conceived that she bore a son and called his name Samuel, saying, because I've asked him of the Lord. The word Samuel can mean any of several things, probably the name of the Lord or called by the Lord. Samuel. And the man Elkanah and all his house went up to offer unto the Lord the yearly sacrifice and his vow. But Hannah went not up, for she said to her husband, I will not go up until the child is weaned, and then I will bring him that he may appear before the Lord and there abide forever. A couple of years that she doesn't wean like we do here. It was a more extended program. But she for several years does not go up to Shiloh with the family, but rather not until she's ready to give the child, the infant, to the temple. 
Verse 23, And Elkanah her husband said unto her, Do what seemeth to thee good, tarry until thou hast weaned him only. The Lord establish his word. So the woman abode and nursed her son until she weaned him. Verse 24, And when she had weaned him, she took him up with her with three bullocks and one ephah of flour and a skin of wine and brought him unto the house of the Lord in Shiloh. And the child was young. And they slew a bullock and brought the child to Eli. And she said, O my Lord, as thy soul liveth, my Lord, I am the woman who stood by thee here, praying unto the Lord. For this child I prayed, and the Lord hath given me my petition, which I asked of him. An incidental comment, by the way, she's obeying the law there. She's, when you pray and get an answer, you were required under the law of Moses to tell the priest. You remember when Jesus healed Several, a couple occasions, a blind men here, a leper there. He said, see thou tell no man, but go tell the priest. The intent of the Lord was to keep it quiet for now. Of course, they didn't. They blabbed it all over the neighborhood. But the point is, he says, why did he say, tell no man, but tell the priest? Because what he's telling him to do, don't tell anybody except that which is required by the law. He's required by the law. He was healed. He's supposed to go to the priest, offer an offering in, in thanksgiving to the Lord. So the reason Jesus said that is he wanted, he wanted, the, you know, wanted them to comply with the law. That's She's probably doing it for lots of other reasons, but I'm just mentioning that that is required by the law, that she explained to the priest that she has had this um, fulfillment of her prayer. Verse 27, For this child I prayed, and the Lord hath given me my petition, which I ask of him. Therefore, also I have lent him to the Lord. As long as he liveth, he shall be lent to the Lord. And he worshipped, and he worshipped the Lord there. So that's the first chapter of um, of um, Samuel. We now encounter in the next ten verses of chapter two what's known as Hannah's song, and many uh, scholars regard it as one of the greatest passages in the Bible. In uh, some of the modern translations, it will be printed as a poem or as a psalm. It's quite eloquent, very poetic, and it is known as uh, Hannah's song or Hannah's uh, prophetic prayer, if you will. Chapter 2, verse 1, And Hannah prayed and said, My heart rejoiceth in the Lord, mine horn is exalted in the Lord, my mouth is enlarged over mine enemies, because I rejoice in my salvation. There is none holy like the Lord, for there is none beside thee, neither is there any rock like our God. Talk no more so exceeding proudly, let not arrogancy come out of your mouth, for the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. You know, I can go on. It doesn't require much comment. It sort of speaks for itself. There's nothing I can add to make that. Uh, it's 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 pretty straightforward. One comment I will make: a uh, horn. I think you are all familiar. You need to be. It's a it's a strange expression for you and I. But in an agrarian economy, a horn was recognized as uh, authority. It was the power of an animal. The bigger the horn, the more powerful the animal. So the horn becomes an idiom of that period of authority and power. It's strange to us, because you and I, we don't normally encounter that, except when the signal changes and the guy behind you, that's a different kind of horn. <laughs> that's the reaction, that's the definition of reaction time, isn't it? The light goes green till the horn blows? Yeah. Anyway, sorry. Never mind, okay. Talk no more exceeding proudly. Let not arrogancy come out of your mouth, for the Lord is a God of knowledge. 
and by him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty men are broken, and they that stumbled are girded with strength. They who were full have hired out themselves for bread, and they who were hungry ceased to hunger. So that the barren hath borne seven, and she who hath many children languisheth it. I'm just referring in general in all the different dimensions how life is topsy-turvy, how the Lord will overturn things, making the weak strong, the strong weak, and so forth. The Lord killeth and maketh alive. He bringeth down to Sheol and bringeth up. The Lord maketh poor and maketh rich. He bringeth low and lifteth up. He raiseth up the poor out of the dust, and he lifteth up the beggar from the refuse to set them among princes and to make them inherit the throne of glory. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and he hath set the world upon them. He will keep the feet of his saints, and the wicked shall be silent in darkness, for the by strength shall no man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Out of heaven shall he thunder upon them. The Lord shall judge the ends of the earth. He shall give strength unto his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Interesting. There's the word king already. We haven't even got to kings yet, have we? Verse 11. And Elkanah went to Ramah, to his house, and the child did minister unto the Lord before Eli the priest. So we have here the introduction of Samuel. He's born as a very small child, is introduced to the temple. He's raised by Eli the priest. And, of course, he becomes the bridge between the book of Judges and the monarchy to come here. Now, to put contrast to this, we're going to see a lot of positive things about Samuel. But it's interesting to see the contrast here. Here's Eli the priest. Let's take a look at his family. And... Uh, all of us that are fathers here will, will understand some of this frustration, I'm sure. Verse 12, Now the sons of Eli were worthless men. They knew not the Lord. And the priest's custom with the people was that when any man offered sacrifice, the priest's servants came, and while the flesh was boiling with a flesh hook of three teeth in his hand, and he struck it into the pan or the kettle or the cauldron or the pot, and all that the flesh hook brought up, the priest took for himself. So they did in Shiloh unto all the Israelites who came there. Also, before they burned the fat, the priest's servant came and said to the man who sacrificed, Give flesh to roast for the priest, for he will not have boiled flesh of thee, but raw. And if any man said unto him, Let them not fail to burn the fat presently, and then take as much as thy soul desireth, then he would answer him, Nay, but thou shalt give it to me now. If not, I will take it by force." What's going on here, uh, it may not be clear to us because we're not familiar how the sacrifices were made, but the point is they were supposed to burn the fat. That was under the Lord. That's first. And uh, uh, a large portion of what they sacrificed was given back to the person sacrificing it to take home for his family. They would, they would have a feast. See, the sacrifice wasn't that they gave it all up. They offered it, burned the fat. The priests had a portion of it. The rest, the guy took... They made a feast out of it for his family. What the sons of Eli did, they, uh, you know, improved the odds a little bit. They insisted that they get the choice pieces right up front. In other words, it's a form of graft that's going on here. They were intruding themselves beyond the law as to what they're entitled to in the sacrifices. And that's dangerous stuff. 
if you're going to cheat somebody, don't do it with the Lord's portion. That's just not smart. It's not smart to cheat anyway, but my point is that it, it takes an unusual amount of arrogance or insensitivity to intrude oneself on a holy office and uh, mess around with what the Lord has ordained. Bad news, and as we'll see here. Verse 17. Wherefore, the sin of the young men was very great before the Lord, for the men abhorred the offering of the Lord. See, that's the real problem. The real problem isn't the meat or their graft. The main, the main, the spiritual problem at the root of this is the disdain, the contempt for the offerings. As far as they are concerned, it was just a, you know, a form of, uh, it was a racket. No more. And the problem there isn't just the injustice to the people and so forth. That's, that's of course has its, has its uh, weight, but, also the fact that the real, the spiritual problem is the insensitivity to the fact that God is God and that God has his rules and he takes those rules very seriously. Verse 18, But Samuel ministered before the Lord being a child, girded with a linen ephod. An ephod is sort of a sleeveless, tight-fitting apron kind of thing. It was very typical for priests to wear, and the child had one. And then also each year, Hannah and uh, kind of come up and bring him a robe, which is also a sleeveless kind of, you know, slits for the head and the arms that they, that the priest would wear. As the child grew, they, they would visit him every year and bring him that stuff. Samuel ministered before the Lord, being a child, girded with linen ephod. Moreover, his mother made him a little coat and brought it to him from year to year when she came up with her husband to offer the yearly sacrifice. And Eli blessed Elkanah and his wife and said, The Lord give thee seed of this woman for the loan which is lent to the Lord. And they went unto their own home. And the Lord visited Hannah so that she conceived and bore three sons and two daughters. And the child Samuel grew before the Lord. So I can just imagine that that household was a lot more peaceful from that point on. And uh, I think that's a, that's Hannah has, has uh, been fulfilled. I think that's exciting. But Eli has got his hands full. Verse 22, Eli was very old and heard all that his sons did unto Israel and how they lay with the women who assembled at the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. See, the graft on the offerings was not the only thing. They also violated the women who were part of the temple service. A number of things that they apparently did and that the women you know, did as a ministry. But the two sons, Abney uh, and Phineas, uh, you know, um, indulged themselves with these women. Bad news. Verse 23, And he said unto them, Why do ye such things? For I hear of your evil dealings by all this people. Nay, my sons, for it is no good report that I hear. Ye make the Lord's people to transgress. See, the real tragedy here, it isn't just their own sin. It isn't just that they're violating those women. The word gets around, and that ethic, that immorality, becomes it becomes a license for others to stumble and get and it gets amplified. If one man sin against another, the judge shall hear him, but if a man sin against the Lord, who shall mediate for him? Good question. Notwithstanding thy hearken not unto the voice of their father, because the Lord would slay them. And the child Samuel grew on and was in favor both with the Lord and also with men. You notice how the writer is putting it antiphonally. The evil here, the good here. You see, there, there is a, 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 a visible editorializing going on here. And uh, 
for good purposes, we'll see. Verse 27, And there came a man of God, unnamed, by the way, a man of God to Eli, and said unto him, Thus saith the Lord, did I plainly appear unto the house of thy father when they were in Egypt in Pharaoh's house? And did I choose him out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest, to offer upon mine altar, to burn incense, to wear an ephod before me? Speaking of Aaron, I believe. Hmm? And uh, did I give unto the house of thy father all the offerings made by fire of the children of Israel? Why trample ye upon my sacrifice and upon my offering, which I have commanded in my habitation, and honorest thy sons above me, to make yourselves fat with the chiefest of all the offerings of Israel, my people? Who's getting chewed out here? Dad. That's why the fathers, this is a tough passage. Tough passage. God's holding Eli accountable for the conduct of his sons. That's tough. Verse 30, Wherefore, the Lord God of Israel said, I said indeed that my house and the house of thy father should walk before me forever. But now the Lord saith, Be it far from me. For them who honor me I will honor, and they who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. Behold, the days come that I will cut off thine arm and the arm of thy father's house, and they shall be not be an old man in thine house. And thou shalt see an enemy in my habitation. In all the wealth which God shall give Israel, there shall not be an old man in thine house forever. And the man of thine, whom I shall not cut off from mine altar, shall be to consume thine eyes and grieve thine heart, and all the increase of thine house shall die in the flower of your age. Tough stuff. And this shall be a sign unto thee that shall come upon Thy two sons, Habni and Phineas, that in one day they shall die, both of them. And I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who shall do according to that which is in mine heart and in my mind. And I will build him a sure house, and he shall walk before mine anointed forever. And it shall come to pass that every one who is left in thine house shall come and bow down to him for a piece of silver and a morsel of bread and shall say, Put me, I pray thee, into one of the priest's offices that I might eat a piece of bread. Okay. Now, we're going to, this, on the one hand, you read this and you visualize what he's speaking of is Samuel. But it goes even more than that because he's also speaking of Zadok. Solomon is going to replace the, off the, the great-grandson of Eli with Zadok as the top dog, and the sons of Zadok will are prophesied to officiate in the millennial temple in Ezekiel. So Zadok is... Uh, Abiathar was uh, um, Eli's great-grandson, and Solomon replaces him, we'll see, and uh, with uh, Zadok. And uh, that will be in 1 Kings 2 when we get there. And the Millennial Temple prophecies of the sons of Zadok officiating in the Millennial Temple is in Ezekiel 40, verse 46, Ezekiel 43, 19, and 44, 15, and 48, 11. We'll touch on that when we get later, but for the tape, we put that down. Okay. Um. Hmm. Okay. I'm going too fast. I'm getting ahead of my notes here. All right. So we're at chapter 3. 
And the child Samuel ministered unto the Lord before Eli. And the word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no frequent vision. He's speaking there of the prophets. You see, we're, uh, uh, later on, we get used to the idea that every time something's going on, there's at least one, several often, prophets declaring the word of the Lord. And, um, but see, in these days, that was not the case. That was not typical. They, they were without a voice, if you will. It came to pass at that time that Eli was lying down in his place, and his eyes began to grow dim that he could not see. And before the lamp of God went out in the temple of the Lord, now this implies it was early morning hours, because every morning they refreshed the oil, the olive oil, in the, in the golden lampstand. They had the seven-branch candlestick, the menorah, and they would fill it. They had little cups with olive oil, and they'd fill it every morning. So the lamps had just about, the, the, they're not quite out. So it's early morning, probably. The lamp of God went out in the temple, just before the lamp went out in the temple of the Lord, where the ark of the God was, and Samuel was lying down to sleep. See, apparently he had a, a little place to sleep right in the holy place. Not the holy of holies, but in the holy place. And uh, and the Lord called unto Samuel. And he answered, Here am I. And he ran to Eli. Now, the Talmud tradition is that he was probably about 12 at this time. Young boy. He heard this voice. Samuel. He thought it was Eli calling for him. Here's Eli who's almost blind because of his age, obviously somewhere else where he was in his quarters, wherever that was. And he thought the voice he heard was, uh, was uh, Eli. So he, uh, he, uh, he ran to Eli in verse 5. He says, Here am I, for thou callest me. He said, I, did, I called not. Lie down again. He went and lay down. And Eli, you know, shrugged it off. Verse 6, And the Lord called yet again, Samuel. Samuel rose and went to Eli. He says, Here am I, for thou didst call me. He answered, I called not, my son. Lie down again. Probably by now the old man is beginning to wonder what's going on here. Now Samuel did not yet know the Lord, neither was the word of the Lord yet revealed unto him. The Lord called Samuel again a third time. And he rose and went to Eli and said, Here am I, for thou didst call me. And Eli perceived that the Lord had called the child. A non-trivial perception. I mean, you know, think about it. And... Um, so therefore Eli said to Samuel, Go lie down, and it shall be that if he shall call thee, that thou shalt say, Speak, Lord, for thy servant heareth. So Samuel went and lay down in his bed, and the Lord came and stood, and called as at other times, Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel answered, Speak, for thy servant heareth. And the Lord said unto Samuel, Behold, I will do a thing in Israel, at which both the ears of every one that heareth it shall tingle. And that day I will perform against Eli all the things that I have spoken concerning his house. When I begin, I will also make an end. Interesting. Lord finishes what he starts. What he begins, he completes. Footnote for your notes. Has he begun something in your life? Think about it. He finishes what he starts. When I begin, I will also make an end. Verse 13. For I have told him that I will judge his house forever for the iniquity which he knoweth, because his sons made themselves vile, and he restrained them not. Aha, there's the problem. See, he was accountable to restrain his sons. Therefore, I have sworn unto the house of Eli that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be purged with sacrifice nor offering forever. Samuel lay in, And Samuel lay until the morning, and he opened the doors of the house of the Lord, and Samuel feared to tell Eli the vision. Can you imagine? Twelve-year-old kid. 
And here's the, I don't know, 90-year-old, whatever, the, the, the aged high priest. And, uh, gee, guess what the Lord told me last night? Yeah. Then Eli called Samuel and said, Samuel, my son, he answered, here am I. said, what is the thing that the Lord hath said unto thee? I pray thee, hide it not from me. God do so to thee and more also. If thou, if thou hide anything from me of all the things that he said unto thee. Now, Eli is not foolish. He obviously must have sensed. He, first of all, he knows that he's in bad shape with the Lord because he got the prophecy earlier. He also can probably sense the hesitancy of this young kid. So he lays it out there. So Samuel told him everything, verse 18. And uh, hid nothing from him. Look at what Eli says. I like that. It is the Lord. Let him do what seemeth to him good. And you say, what choice did he have? Yeah, but still, he's he recognizes that God is God. And uh, I think it was Saul. It might be a different response. But anyway, Eli is, uh, is recognizes that uh, it's coming. Verse 19, And Samuel grew, and the Lord was with him, and did let none of his words fall to the ground. Interesting expression, isn't it? And all Israel, from Dan even to Beersheba, knew that Samuel was established to be a prophet of the Lord. Word gets around. Samuel's a prophet. Dan is up in the north, northern border, and Beersheba is down in the south. So it's like, you know, it's like, uh, this is like sort of like saying from Maine to California or something. I mean, it's top to bottom, Dan to Beersheba. From Dan to Beersheba, it knew that uh, Samuel was established to be a prophet of the Lord. And the Lord appeared again in Shiloh, for the Lord revealed himself to Samuel in Shiloh by the word of the Lord. Chapter 4, and the word of the Lord, a word of Samuel came to all Israel. Now Israel went out against the Philistines to battle and encamped beside Ebenezer. And uh, the Philistines encamped at Aphek. Here's where they make a big mistake, of course, as we'll see. The Philistines put themselves in array against Israel, and when they joined battle, Israel was smitten before the Philistines, and they slew of the army of the field 4,000 men. That's a non-trivial loss, and yet it's nothing like they're about to encounter. 4,000 men slaughtered. When the people were come, verse 3, into the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why hath the Lord smitten us today before the Philistines? Good question. Uh, there's no record of whether they did they inquire of the Lord first, whether they should even go in. You know, I mean, there's a whole, there's a number of missing links here. But in any case, they uh, they uh, make a dangerous mistake, a mistake that uh, all of us could fall in the trap of making. They they, con they confuse form with substance. You see what they do? They say, Let us fetch the ark of the covenant of the Lord out of Shiloh unto us, that when it cometh among us, it may save us out of the land of the, our enemies. Do you get the confused thinking there? The Ark of the Covenant isn't anything. It's a symbol. The Lord can save them or not save them. The Ark isn't, you know, it doesn't have to be there. In fact, if you check the law, the Ark is not supposed to go to war. And, uh, but they, uh, they blow it. And, uh, they're treating the Ark of the Covenant like a rabbit's foot. This is called fetishism, in effect. And it happens a lot. You recall in the book of Numbers when they had the, you know, when they had the plague of uh, the serpents. And uh, 
Moses instructed to make a brazen serpent and raise it up, and everybody that looked at the brazen serpent would be cured, remember? It's very important to us because Jesus himself makes reference to that. It says the brazen serpent was raised in the wilderness, so shall the Son of Man be raised up. And that brass serpent is a symbol of Jesus Christ. Brass is judgment, serpent is sin, it's sin judged. And the New Testament tells that Jesus was made sin for us. So there's an important Levitical tie together of all that. But the point is, later on, in the days of Hezekiah, one of the things Hezekiah has to do is destroy that brass serpent. It's still hanging around. They had it in Numbers. The legend of that goes to Alexandria and becomes the root legend that leads to Escalapius, which becomes the symbol of the medical profession. The army medical profession screws it up. They have two, they have two serpents that are intertwined. Someone didn't do their homework. That's the symbol of Hermes, which is the god of commerce. Now, <laughs> so, I don't know, maybe that was prophetic, I don't know. But the point is, in the days of Hezekiah, that brazen serpent is around, and people are worshiping it. And they have to crush it and destroy it, because he recognizes the danger of fetishism. And that's the risk with Noah's Ark. When they finally break through the ice and start bringing back pieces, you can just see it all start. You've got a Shroud of Turin kind of thing all over again. Okay. Well, that's, uh, that's part of the mentality, the psychology here. Gee, if we had the ark, see, we've got our lucky rabbit's foot, and that'll be fine. They, they really miss the point that God is a living God, and God will favor or not favor them, depending on whether they're in his will or not. But in any case, they decide to take matters in their own hands, and they bring the ark up out of Shiloh. So verse 4, so the people went to Shiloh that they might bring from there the ark of the covenant of the Lord of hosts who dwelleth between the cherubim. Now, you understand the Ark of the Covenant, the lid of it, called the Mercy Seat, had these two cherubim, and God is said to dwell between the cherubim in the, in the Holy of Holies. He would, the Shekinah glory would dwell between the cherubim. Also, when we see the vision of the throne of heaven, we see four cherubim in Isaiah 6 and Ezekiel 2 and 10 and Revelation 4 and 5. And again, he dwells, the, 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 the inner circle of the throne of God is surrounded by four, in reality, two in the model of a cherubim. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. And when the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel shouted with a great shout, so that the earth rang again. They shouted so much that actually the ground shook. And when the Philistines heard the noise of the shout, they said, What meaneth the noise of this great shout in the camp of the Hebrews? Now, they're probably miles away, but they hear the noise, see? And they understood that the Ark of the Lord was coming to the camp. And the Philistines were afraid, for they said, God has come into the camp. They said, Woe unto us, for there hath not been such a thing uh, heretofore. See, I'm sure they've heard the legends of the, the uh, exodus of Egypt. So lurking behind their own arrogance, there's this fear that, gee, there may be something going on here that we can't handle. So they're, you know... Verse 8, Woe unto us, who shall deliver us out of the hand of these mighty gods? These are the gods that smote the Egyptians with all the plagues in the wilderness. Be strong and acquit yourselves like men, O ye Philistines, that ye be not servants unto the Hebrews, as they have been to you. Acquit yourselves like men and fight. <laughs> you got to give the Philistines credit. They think they're up against God, right? So they got to fight harder. <laughs> Now, I mean, look at it from their point of view. You know, they're, 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 you know, they're gutsy guys. 
Quit yourselves like men and fight. The fact that the God of the universe is against you, don't let that make you nervous, you know. <laughs> and the Philistines fought, and Israel was smitten, and they fled every man to his tent, and there was a very great slaughter, for fell of Israel 30,000 footmen. They were eight to, were eight to one worse off than they were before. And the ark of God was taken. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were slain. That was a heavy day for Eli, huh? It's not over. Verse 12. There ran a man of Benjamin out of the army. And incidentally, the Talmudic tradition that this man of Benjamin was a guy by the name of Saul. We'll read more about him later. That's not in the scripture. It's just a tradition, but it's interesting. There ran a man of Benjamin out of the army... And came to Shiloh the same day with his clothes torn and the earth upon his head. And he came, and when he came, lo, Eli sat upon a seat by the wayside watching, for his heart trembled for the ark of God. And when the man came into the city, he told it, all the city cried out. And when Eli heard the noise of the crying, he said, What meaneth the noise of this tumult? And the man came in hastily and told Eli. He came in hastily. You see, he, he didn't realize the impact of what he's about to tell Eli. Not just his two sons, but also the ark was taken. See, to Eli, that's a catastrophe. He came in hastily and apparently blurted it out. Look what the result of it is, you see. The man came in hastily and told Eli, verse 15, Now Eli was ninety and eight years old, and his eyes were dim that he could not see. And the man said to Eli, I am he who came out of the army, and I fled today out of the army. And he said, What is there done, my son? The messenger answered and said, Israel has fled before the Philistines, and there hath been so great a slaughter among the people that thy two sons also, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead, and the Ark of the Covenant is taken. Or, excuse me, the Ark of the God, of God is taken. It came to pass when he made mention of the Ark of God, that Eli, he said, he fell off the seat backward by the side of the gate, and his neck broke, and he died, for he was a an old man and heavy, and he had judged Israel 40 years. It's interesting that the shock that apparently caused him to fall wasn't that his two sons were killed. I'm sure that was a contributing factor, but the point is, when he heard that the ark was taken, that was unthinkable in his mind. And he fell off the bench and broke his neck. His daughter-in-law, Phineas' wife, was with child near to be delivered. And when she heard the tidings of the ark was taken, and that her father-in-law and her husband were dead, she bowed herself and travailed, and her pains came upon her. And about the time of her death, the women who stood by her said unto her, Fear not, for thou hast borne a son. But she answered not, neither did she regard it. She, and she named the child Ichabod saying that glory is departed from Israel because the ark of the God is taken and because of her father-in-law and her husband. And she said, the glory is departed from Israel for the ark is taken. So she dies in childbirth, but she names the, the son Ichabod, which means inglorious, or the glory is departed. That's got to be a tough name to live with. Huh? Imagine what happens when he goes to college. huh? Okay, where are we? Well, we'll keep moving. We're, we're rolling here, huh? Okay. <laughs> Chapter 5, verse 1. The Philistines took the ark of God and brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. 
There's five major cities of the Philistines, and we'll encounter all of them because they <laughs> they unwillingly put this ark on tour. They, you know, now that you got it, what do you do with it, right? It sounded like a good idea at the time. I can just hear the guys talking about this. When the Philistines took the ark of God, they brought it into the house of Dagon and set it by Dagon. We're familiar with Dagon from the story of Samson, right? And uh, Dagon is, uh, the, you know, one of the major gods of the Philistines in their pantheon of gods. And um, so they, uh, when they, they of Ashdod rose early the next day, behold, Dagon was fallen upon his face to the earth before the ark of the Lord. <laughs> and they took Dagon and set him on his place again. You have to see that God has a sense of humor, you know. <laughs> you know, he could just wipe them all out one night. All kinds of things he could do. But I just, I just can't help but see him with a smile on his face. Here is this stupid idol bowing before the Ark of the Covenant. You know, that's a, a symbolism that would not be lost on the Philistines. <laughs> A couple of junior officers figured it may have been a fraternity prank, but we'll see. It set him on his place again. And when they rose early on the next morning, behold, Dagon was fallen upon his face to the ground before the ark of the Lord. And the head of Dagon and both the palms of his hands were cut off upon the threshold. Only the stump of Dagon was left to him. In the Semitic tribe, in the Semitic, uh, uh, some of the Semitic tribes, you know, uh, if you go to uh, certain parts of the Arab world, you see someone without a right hand, that means he was tried and convicted of thievery. You can't eat in polite society but with your right hand. Never use your left. And so if you are convicted of, and you lose your right hand, it's, it's also a huge social issue besides the inconvenience. And... Uh, so uh, there, there may be there, there, there. You know, there, there's a lot more symbolism here than just the fact that he was, you know, went to pieces here. <laughs> Verse five. Therefore, therefore, neither the priests of Dagon nor any that come into Dagon's house tread on the threshold of Dagon in Ashdod unto this day. But the hand of the Lord was heavy upon them of Ashdod, and he destroyed them and smote them with tumors, even as Ashdod and its borders. And the men of Ashdod saw that it was so, and they said, The ark of the God of Israel shall not abide with us, for his hand is heavy upon us and upon Dagon our God. It's interesting that they not only saw the insult to their God as something supernatural, but they also attributed this horrible diseases. In fact, we're going to get hints of this later. It probably it may have well have been a bubonic plague type of thing, because rats are involved, and tumors and such. And so, so in any case, uh, they, they, they recognize that, uh, that uh, having the ark is not a privilege. And so they want to get it out of there. Verse 8, Therefore they sent and gathered all the lords of the Philistines, said unto them, What shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? And the answer, Well, let the ark of the God of Israel be carried about to Gath. And they carried the ark of God of Israel about there. <laughs> I don't know what the logic was behind that. that uh, other than the, 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 the guys from Gath didn't carry much weight, I guess. Um, <laughs> And it was so that after they had carried it about, that the hand of the Lord was heavy against this, the city with very great destruction. And he smote the men of the city, both small and great, and they had tumors in their secret parts. <laughs> <laughs> Therefore he sent the ark of God to Ekron. And it came to pass that the ark of God came out of Ekron. The Ekronites cried out, saying, They have brought the ark of God of Israel to us to slay us and our people. 
like passing around a case of AIDS or something. <laughs> Verse 11, So they sent and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, Send away the ark of the God of Israel and let it go again to its own place, and that it slay us not and our people. For there was a deadly destruction throughout all the city. The hand of God was very heavy there. And the men that died not were smitten with the tumors, and the cry of the city went up to heaven. Chapter 6. The ark of the Lord was in the country of the Philistines seven months. Interesting period of time. There's going to be an invasion of Israel. And in the invasion of Israel in the Middle East, probably not too far away, there'll be a huge slaughter. Five, six of the invading forces will be wiped out. They will not enter the battleground for seven months. Then after seven months, they'll send in professionals to bury the dead. It'll take seven months. And they'll take the bones and bury them downwind east of the Jordan. And if somebody goes through the valley where the battle was and sees a bone they've missed, he doesn't touch it. He marks its location and lets the professionals come and bury it. Ezekiel chapter 39, the cleanup of Ezekiel 38. The Soviet Union and its allies invading Israel. The Lord says, I'll put hooks in thy jaws. Going to draw unwilling antagonist into the picture. Read your papers every day. It's interesting. Seven months. Well, we have seven months here too. Philistines. The ark was in the Philistines seven months. And the Philistines called for the priests and the diviners, saying, "What shall we do with the ark of the Lord? Tell us in what way shall we send it to its place?" Sounds like a meeting for on nuclear waste or something, doesn't it? And they said, if ye send away the ark of the God of Israel, send it not empty, but by all means return him a trespass offering. Then ye shall be healed, and it shall be known to you why his hand is not removed from you. <coughs> then said they, well, what shall be the trespass offering, which we shall return to him? <laughs> I really wanted to get through this passage with a straight face. I'm not going to be able to make it. They figured out that, you know, that that's their whole mentality of their God. You gotta, you know, give them a peace offering. You know, a bribe, I guess, or something. And so, well, what are you gonna give them? He says, well, we'll give them five golden tumors and five golden mice. See, that's the clue that rats somehow were involved in all this. Five golden tumors and five golden mice, according to the number of the lords of the Philistines, for one plague was on you all and on your lords. See, the five major cities were five major city states. Each had a lord, and so, the five represents those five cities. Wherefore, ye shall make images of your tumors. <laughs> I don't know if archaeologically we've ever recovered any of those or if we could recognize it. <laughs> or images of your mice that mar the land. And ye shall give glory unto the God of Israel. Perhaps he will lighten his hand from you and from your gods and from your land. Why then do you harden your hearts as the Egyptians and Pharaoh hardened their hearts? when he had wrought wonderfully among them that they had not, that they uh, not let the people go and they departed. Now, therefore, make a new... In other words, they're comparing the error of the Egyptians. Now, we all know the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, but he hardened it first several times before the Lord increased the hardness, by the way. Incidental issue, but uh, i make that point for... Yeah, I've got a proof text here somewhere, but anyway, we can look at it. Anyway, okay. 
So they don't want to harden their hearts. They want to get on with it. So they said, now therefore make a new cart and take two milk cows on which hath come no yoke and tie the cows to the cart and bring their calves home from them. You know, this sounds like a task of Hercules. You're going to take two cows who have just calved. You're going to take the calves away from them. What are those cows going to do? You're going to go back to the calves, right? They're cows that have had no yoke. These are not yoke oxen. These are cows that have never had a yoke. Hope the new cart's very strong. And tie the cows to the cart, bring the calves home from them. Take the ark of the, of the Lord and lay it upon the cart and put the jewels of gold which ye, re, which ye return him for a trespass offering in a box by the side of it and send it away that it may go. And see, if it goeth by the way of its own border to Beth Shemesh, then he hath done us this great evil. But if not, then we shall know that it is not his hand that smote us, it was a chance that happened to us. This is a controlled experiment. They're exploring the null hypothesis. See, it's, all the odds are against these cattle going anywhere but in different directions. But if they go dutifully on the road to Beshem, how do they know Bethlehem? They're cattle the other way. They're, they're, ca they're calves the other way. But the, you know, the priests, are, are it's a shrewd strategy. If God is really in this thing, well, then they'll go. Despite all this, they'll go. If not, we know it's just, you know, our bad luck. They're showing more judgment than some of the scientists that conduct uh, discussions of uh, biogenesis. But that's another story. The men did so, uh, and the, the men did so, and they took the two milk cows and tied them to the cart and shut up their calves at home. And they laid the ark of the Lord upon the cart and the box with the mice of gold, the images of their tumors. <laughs> and the cows took the straight way to the way of Beth Shemesh. And they went along the highway, lowing as they went, and turned not aside to the right end or to the left. They're lowing, of course, because they don't have their calves with them. But nevertheless, they're going where they're supposed to. They lifted up their eyes and saw the ark and rejoiced to see it. Actually, I missed a verse, excuse me. The, uh, and the lords of the Philistines went after them to the border of Beth Shemesh. And they of Beth Shemesh were weeping, reaping their wheat harvest in the valley. And they lifted up their eyes and, they, and saw the ark, and they rejoiced to see it. I imagine they were pretty puzzled. Here's these two cows and the ark, this treasured thing coming by itself up the road. <laughs> and the cart came into the field of Joshua the Beshemite and stood there, and there was a great stone. And they split the wood of the cart and offered the cows a burnt offering unto the Lord. In other words, they used the cart itself for the wood, slaughtered the cows as an offering. And the Levites took down the ark of the Lord and the box that was with it, wherein uh, the jewels of gold were, and put them on the great stone. And the men of Beth Shemesh offered burnt offerings and sacrifice sacrifices on the same day of the Lord. I have no idea what kind of conversation when they opened the box to figure out what this was. <laughs> <laughs> that they were receiving as this, uh, this, <laughs> this offering. <laughs> My wife's going to be proud of me because of all the cracks I'm not making. 
Verse 16, and then the, when the five lords of the Philistines had seen it, they're obviously watching in the distance, they returned to Ekron the same day. And these are the golden tumors which the Philistines returned for a trespass offering unto the Lord for Ashdod one, Gaza one, Ashkelon one, Gath one, and Ekron one. There's five major cities of the Philistines there. And the golden mice, according to the number of all the cities of the Philistines belonging to the five lords, both of fortified cities and country villages, even unto the great stone of Abel, whereon they sat down, the ark of the Lord, which stone remaineth unto this day in the field of Joshua the Bethshemite. And he smote the men of Bethshemite, because they had looked into the ark of the Lord. Even he smote of the people fifty thousand threescore and ten men. And the people lamented, because the Lord had smitten many of the people with a great slaughter. Boy. On the one hand, they're rejoicing, because the ark coming back. On the other hand, they weren't following directions. They peeked inside. They're not supposed to do that. The one thing you do get the impression is that God takes these things seriously. And uh, well, this is the God of the Old Testament. We're in the New Testament. Hey, God's the same yesterday, today, and forever. God does not mess around. And he means what he says. In Exodus chapter 20, we don't have ten suggestions. And uh, God is... Um, God is God. So it's a tough, tough lesson to realize. And it's going to get interesting as David has to learn the lesson also when he decides to move the ark improperly. And the men of Beth Shemesh said, who, sh who is able to stand before this holy Lord God? And to whom shall he go up from us? And they sent messengers to the inhabitants of Kiriath-Jerim, saying, The Philistines have brought again the ark of the Lord. Come ye down and fetch it up to you. <laughs> they don't want to handle it anymore either. Okay. I think we're going to stop there for a couple of reasons. Uh, it's the end. We'll, we'll pick it up next time at chapter 7. And we're a little early. I understand that because of what you're going to do. Those of you that would like to beat the crowd at the chapel store for the reduced price of the Halloween video can beat Gary, uh, Greg Galore's gang over there, right? And um, those of you that uh, uh, want to ask questions or whatever can stick around for a little bit. Let's stand for a closing word of prayer. Book of First Kings in the Septuagint or First Samuel in our Bibles, first of the, the, the bridge to the monarchy and establishing the house of David, the monarchy that will endure forever. Interesting, interesting roots that we need to understand. Let's bow our hearts. Father, we praise you for who you are. And Father, we, we pause as we watch your dealings with man. Father, help us to understand that you mean what you say and you say what you mean. Father, we just thank you that we are indeed in Jesus Christ. We thank you, Father, that you've gone to such extremes as to provide perfection for us in him that his perfection might be imputed to us and fathers we're confronted with the requirements of fellowship with you we rejoice that you have provided that fellowship for us in him that by our being in Christ we might indeed have fellowship with you father we would ask you that you would indeed increase in us an appetite for your word that you might illumine your word to our hearts, 
Father, we'd ask that through your Holy Spirit you'd increase in us a response to your word that we might be more pleasing in thy sight, that we might grow in grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, that we might be more sensitive to that unique particular calling you have for each and every one of us in these days. For we ask all these things to his glory.